0: So if you've been with us, uh, you may remember, um, we've been covering in the time of Easter this year, the mighty deeds that Jesus has done. Um, Actually, that was before Easter, we were going through the book of John, and then in Easter we've been looking at all the gospel presentations, how they demonstrate and reveal Jesus' power over death, and we've been looking at each of the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John— each one of those, and their perspective and recording of the resurrection. And one of the main themes that we've been talking about, both uh, before Easter as well as the celebration of Easter, um, we've been looking at this idea of fire from heaven. That is, whenever the Bible reveals a picture of the heavenly things, there is fire, a cloud, smoke, uh, there's a tumult, or... If you go to Ezekiel 1, we didn't cover Ezekiel 1, but if you take a look in Ezekiel 1, it's crazy. If if Ezekiel wasn't being encountered by the Holy Spirit, you might think he's on acid because he describes things like wheels that intersect with other wheels and uh, people who are running around in heaven on fire, uh, flying around, protecting themselves from the terror and glory of God. Uh, a, a mighty display of God's holiness and a fire that follows the Spirit. He says wherever the Spirit moved, the fire moved. And so, uh, you know, some somewhat of a, a depiction of the Holy Spirit's invigorating power. Today we are celebrating Ascension, having just spent our time in Easter looking at Christ's uh, power, Christ's dealings through the resurrection with his disciples, how Even though they ran away from him and were scared and scattered, Jesus went after them and sought them out and spoke the gospel to them, bringing them to himself. And so Jesus is forming the disciples now into a group of people who will carry the gospel and be the start of the church, of this new work that Jesus has done. Jesus has Already prophesied that he is going to destroy the temple in Jerusalem, saying that you can, you know, not one stone will be left, but making a corollary saying that you will destroy this temple, speaking of his body, and then it will be raised up on the third day. So Jesus is doing a new work of building a new temple. And today, though we're celebrating ascension, we're actually going to be looking at how it's not just something that Jesus does at taking his rightful place. But scripturally speaking, the ascension is the completion of Jesus Christ's atoning work. Now that seems like a very... Uh, that, that may seem to you like a very weird idea, that, that the atonement was completed on the cross. But I submit to you what we're going to talk about today, Jesus's atonement... Does more than just remove the sins of the world. It also prepares and establishes and lays the foundation of the new work in the earth that is the church, which will be uh, born, so to speak, on Pentecost, which we'll celebrate next week. Uh, Ascension technically is celebrated on Thursday, but the, you know this last Thursday, but we didn't celebrate it then. We celebrated on Sunday. Um, Hopefully, when we're a little bit larger and have some staff, we could do interweek services. They're they're very hard to pull off. But anyway, uh, let's get into it. Um, In in the book of uh, Acts, we see Jesus uh, about to ascend, um, and this context of ascension needs to be understood, and so all that we're going to be talking about today in ascension um, is is a covenantal historical theme, which I hope to demonstrate. And then you building on your knowledge of the Old Testament will be able to put two and two together. So the things we're going to talk about today is obviously the ascension. We're going to look at what happens when Jesus ascends in Acts 1. We're going to look at the covenantal historical theme of temple building and spirit filling, two steps of God's ordination of his house. We're going to look at my assertion that the atonement is completed through the ascension, and then finally we're going to draw implications for how we're to live as the Hebrew writer uh, we've already heard made mention. So Messianic expectations of the early Second Temple Judaism were that of a king-priest or warrior-judge-deliverer who would expel the Roman occupation but God has an absolutely different plan altogether. You've heard that. In fact, my, my dad even made a strong mention of that this morning. But what what Second Temple Judaism means is just that Solomon's temple was destroyed, and then Herod made a temple that wasn't ordained uh, explicitly by God, but it was established as a place where the, the Jews would offer their sacrifices and, and uh, worship Yahweh. But uh, Second Temple Judaism descri- that phrase describes the doctrines that Judaism held in the Second Temple period. So the time of Christ that Christ arrives and lives in Second Temple Judaism. So we see that the disciples are at least thinking, you know, partially influenced by this thinking through the road to Emmaus. Um, I've been making mention of this week and uh, week and week out. But we had hoped, Luke twenty four twenty one. but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Now, remember, we said that the disciples who are being encountered, as Luke records, by Jesus on the road to Emmaus, uh, they have lost hope that Jesus was the Messiah, right? These disciples walked with Jesus for three and a half years, and after that time, they had lost hope. They, their expectations had been dashed because he was killed. And so they, at this point, the disciples who were saying this to Jesus because he asked them, what are you talking about? Uh, Because they were veiled and they couldn't identify him as the Christ. They were uh, temporarily blinded by the Lord. They say, they reveal reveal their doubt. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Now, what could redeem mean in the covenantal slash historical situation of this time? Think about this. Israel is in the land, right? So God's promise to Israel, God's promise to Abraham, I'm going to take you from a nation you don't know and bring you into a land that you've never seen, that you didn't prepare. You're going to get houses with vineyards that you didn't plant an amazing promise, God brings Israel into the land and he's fulfilled his covenant. So Israel can't be redeemed in this sense. We hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel in the sense that they need to be in the land because they're already in the land, right? So they can't mean by redeem that they they need to be brought in the land. And Israel already has the law. God's promise to Abraham is I'm going to uh, give you not only a nation and a place, but you will be my people. And part of being God's people is living in his ways, in his law. So Israel has the law, and they have teachers of the law. Jesus at one point tells the people that he preaches to, he says, do what the Pharisees say to do, but don't do what they do. As in, they taught the law well. So Israel's already in the land, they already have the law, and Israel already has a king, though a caveat, he's not David's king. So redeem in Luke 24 21, could not mean they need to be brought back from exile which is a common theme of the Old Testament they sin, they go into exile God needs to bring them back well they're already in the land so it's not a return from exile it's not a giving of the law or a restoration of the law because this is a time where the law is being preached and then it's not at all that they need a king although it is true granted that they do need a righteous king. So redeem, in this situation, the only thing that is wrong from a covenant historical uh, standpoint is the occupation of the Romans. If you go over and over again throughout the Old Testament, whenever Israel is in trouble, she is occupied by the inhabitants of the land, the Philistines, the Moabites, the Amorites. This is the only possible meaning that an Israelite could have. Everything else in their country was great. They had a king. They had mild military success and protection. The only problem was they were being taxed and and persecuted and oppressed by the Romans. And this connects with the Emmaus discourse. Jesus had already been killed by the Romans, but now his resurrection shows that he's stronger. So the disciples are kind of like, hey, wait, we had thought that Jesus was going to throw out the Romans, and then after the resurrection, they seem to revert to that line of thinking. This mindset has to be the impetus for the question that we see in Acts 1, uh, verse uh, 6. Jesus had already defeated crucifixion, Rome's main weapon against her enemies, uh, and has, Jesus himself has been speaking about the kingdom of God for 40 days. So think about this. If you're an Israelite, and your nation is occupied, and you believe that the Messiah your opinion of the Messiah is that he will come and bring a campaign against Rome and throw out the occupiers of the land so Israel can be in the land truly, then your expectation that Jesus, when he says he's the Son of God, that he is the Messiah, your expectation of Jesus is going to say, oh, well, not only did Jesus show that he's stronger than Rome's main uh, tool that is crucifixion, now it's time for Jesus to show that his armies are stronger than Rome, and he's greater than Caesar. Now, Jesus is greater than Caesar, but not in the way they think. In Acts 1, 6 through 8, so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Verse 7, look at Jesus's response. Verse 7, he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or season." Seasons that the father has fixed on his own authority. What he's saying is, it's not for you to know when the Romans are going to leave. Uh, Daniel, in the, in the book of Daniel, Daniel is encountered by angelic messengers who tell Daniel when nations are going to rise and when nations are going to fall. But he says to the disciples, this isn't your goal. Your goal is not prophecy. Your goal is to be apostles and evangelists to bring the gospel to found the church. It's not for you to know when Rome's leaving. Then the answer becomes extremely clear. Jesus' response to, when are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel, is this, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. It's not a disconnected idea. There's a conjunction, the word but. It's not for you to do this, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria to the end of the earth. We talked about this last week that that is the goal of the disciples is they are going to go throughout the whole world and take the law from Jerusalem. Jesus' kingdom is not of this world and Israel is not as the sa- is not the same as God's people. Therefore, his response to the restoring of the kingdom question is the sending of the spirit. <clears throat> Precisely at this moment, the Father lifts Jesus up and uh, brings him up into heaven, It brings him up into a cloud, a cloud, of course, being a picture of the Spirit. You have to see that this is done, uh, and I say precisely at this moment, that the writer of Acts, uh, Luke the physician, is attempting to drive home this idea that Jesus is ascended to go send the Spirit to bring the kingdom. Verse 9, and when he had said these things, that phrase is a vital connection. Whenever you see something in the scriptures, and when he had done, or after this, etc., it's trying to indicate there is a purpose behind Christ's actions or God's actions. As they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took them out of their sight. And while they were gazing uh, into heaven, there were two men who stood by them in white robes. Again, there's that picture of white robes and heavenly messengers. And he said to them, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way. Now, at this point, we're tempted to think, okay, well, the ascension's taken place and Jesus is kind of gone. The disciples are just going to be left to their own devices. May I submit to you there is an extreme reason why we understand the the words and when he had said these things, he was lifted up. That connection to sending of the Spirit means that Jesus himself is ascending for the purpose of getting ready to send the Spirit you 've got to ask yourself the question in this in this idea of the spirit coming, oh thanks um, why did the Holy Spirit not come immediately after the crucifixion or the, the resurrection? Have you ever thought of that? that that may seem like a weird question, but think about it for a second why Why was the Holy Spirit not yet descended on the disciples now it 's true in John. 16, uh, Jesus does breathe on the disciples, and he says, receive the Holy Spirit, but not in the way where the Holy Spirit comes and baptizes not only the, the 12, but also uh, the rest of the church at the time, the 120 who are in the upper room. Why didn't the Holy Spirit, if if the ascension uh, does nothing but rather establish Jesus in heaven, if the crucifixion and the resurrection were sufficient enough to allow the new project of God's people on the earth to be formed and filled, why did the Spirit wait until after ascension to come? Why wouldn't the Holy Spirit just fall? Because that's part of the new covenant. God's promise to to Ezekiel is that I will not only write my law on your hearts, but I will put a new Spirit with And so at this point... We've got to we've got to find an answer to the question. There's there's not enough uh, evidence right here to understand or to answer concretely. You might be able to say that Jesus needed to demonstrate evidence of his bodily resurrection to the disciples uh, for a period of forty days, but that's not very sufficient because we know that Jesus doesn't go to heaven and then become the Spirit. That's a heresy called modalism. Uh, We know that Jesus can be on the earth and someone can be filled with the Spirit at the same time. In fact, people were filled with the Spirit uh, in the Old Covenant. Um, So, But just individuals. He spent a, f- a period of 40 days teaching them about the kingdom, so it could be the case that, you know, the Spirit can't come yet because Jesus is still interacting with the disciples one-on-one. Those two reasons don't seem very sufficient, uh, and I don't think they even make very much sense. The Spirit could come while Jesus was still on the earth physically. So why does the Spirit come? Well, perhaps we should look in the rest of the Bible for how the Spirit has come into Other situations, we know that Jesus is forming a new people. He's forming a new building. First Peter will, you know, after after these things, when First Peter is written, First Peter, uh, he explains that that we are being built up into a spiritual temple, stones fitted together, so that the Spirit would come and dwell. So let's ask ourselves, how has the Spirit come in other times? Well, at the beginning of the, the people of Israel, uh, coming out of Egypt, the Holy Spirit comes as a spirit pillar, which is revealed at, in daytime as a cloud and at nighttime uh, as a fire. Now, there, I would assert that there is definitely just one pillar, that is, the Spirit is being manifested, um, and that, that pillar is an indication of God coming, and He brings what? A cloud, and He brings fire, correct? Now, uh, the idea that there's only one pillar might seem strange. How could it be a cloud during the day and then fire? Have you ever um, turned on your stove and, and you see you know, something on the stove and it's uh, kind of black or gray or maybe you've got a glass top stove and it's, it's just, uh, um, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't glow because there's light on in the room. Well, turn off the lights and you'll see the stove glowing, right? The, the heating element will be red hot. But while there's light, You can't see it because the light is a little stronger than the the heat from the heating element. This is why he's a cloud by day during the sunlight. They can't see through the mistiness of the cloud. And then at the end of the day, during night, it appears as what it really is, a fire in the center, right? So this image of a cloud by day and a fire by night is the Spirit coming to pull Israel out of Egypt. We connect it again with Mount Sinai. When Moses is called up, Mount Sinai is covered with smoke and fire, which produces a cloud quaking and trembling because Yahweh's come to visit. Remember, if you take a brick and drop it into water, what happens? Splashes, ripples, bubbles, because whatever is heavier or weightier falls through whatever is weaker and less stable. When Yahweh comes to Mount Sinai, the mountains shake at the presence of the Lord. And so at this point, we're, we're building an image. God calls Moses up and shows Moses the pattern of how to build the, tab- the tabernacle. When the tabernacle is built, the spirit then comes and fills. So the tabernacle when it's being built is not yet filled with the spirit. It's still being worked on. Exodus 40:33 through 34, he Moses erected the court all around the tabernacle and the altar and hung up the veil for the gateway to the court. Thus Moses finishes the work. Look at the very next verse. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Again, the connection being that Moses is done with his work, then the Spirit comes and fills. This is a pattern over and over again. Likewise, the Spirit fills Solomon's temple after it is built and dedicated and prepared. Second Chronicles 7, 1 through 2, now when Solomon had finished praying, fire came down from heaven. Solomon, in the previous chapter, we don't have time to, to cover it, issues the the most amazing prayer, establishing Israel, asking for God's protection, for them to not drift uh, from the path, for, for them to, to follow after Yahweh and not go after other gods. And after that great prayer, Solomon is a symbol at this point of a high king, high priest. He's both the king and he functions in a priestly manner, praying and dedicating the temple, though not offering sacrifices, unlike Saul. Now, when Solomon had finished praying... That's after it's built, and then they come in and have a solemn assembly, and Solomon begins to pray. Fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and look at this, and the glory of the Lord filled the house. The priests could not enter into the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the house. So both on Mount Sinai, there's cloud, there's a fire. Moses sees the pattern of how to build the tabernacle. Likewise, when building the tabernacle, after it's finished, there's a cloud, there's fire. When the temple is finished, Solomon's temple, there's a cloud, there's fire. We're seeing a pattern. What's the point of all this? Um, the heavenly temple is a true reality in God's uh, presence, immediate presence. And the the book of Hebrews uh, is... A masterpiece in explaining the symbolism of the Old Testament and the signs and realities uh, that are connected. So there's signs of the reality and then there's the reality itself. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 8, verse 5, who serve, that relative pronoun is talking about the priests, they serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things, just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle for, see, he says, that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown to you on the mountain. This pattern that Moses was shown is a thing that is going to teach the worshipers and the priests of who God is in his holiness, the things that they have to do to approach God. They have to first wash themselves, then they wash the offering, then they slay the offering in an appropriate manner, not strangling it, not eating the wrong pieces of the offering, etc. Teaching them that to approach God is a, without perfect covering is a terrifying thing. And at this point when we see Jesus doing these things bringing a people from the midst of Israel to make the to reveal the true Israel that is the church we see him embarking on a temple building project This is what Jesus is doing in his atonement he doesn't just die on the cross in, to establish the possibility in a cosmic sense or a universal sense of possible salvation he's doing his all of his work, his crucifixion, his resurrection, his ascension, to establish a people, to establish a nation within the nations. The Spirit always comes when the tabernacle, temple, or house is finished. So, we can answer our question. If the Spirit has not yet descended after the resurrection, before the ascension, then we know that the ascension must be the purification of the new building. That is, the ascension is kind of the capstone, if you will, on Christ's work. Have you ever gone to school and at the end of your time in school, they make you take what sometimes is called a capstone class? It's basically a class that is designed in such a way as to round up and uh, re-summarize and and uh, re-emphasize those things which you've learned. It's kind of a It's a bachelor's degree equivalent of like a thesis. It's it's a way in which you demonstrate what you've learned. The ascension is the capstone on Christ's earthly ministry. It is the culmination and graduation of that earthly ministry being transferred from Christ to the apostles, as we will see. So on the day of the atonement, if you remember the high priest, he creates a cloud in the midst of the temple. Leviticus sixteen, twelve, and 13, he shall take a fire pan full of coals of fire from upon the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of finely ground sweet incense and bring it inside the veil. Have you ever burned incense? Do you know what happens when you burn incense? Lots of smoke if you burn it the right way. Uh, there's lots of smoke, lots of aroma. Have you ever seen incense burned in in like a church service? Maybe maybe if you've been visiting a Catholic church or an Anglican church, there when they burn uh, when they burn incense, there's tons and tons of smoke. What happens in the burning of incense or an offering? The smoke rises, but it also at some point stops rising because the building has a ceiling. And in this place, then a cloud is created. And so the high priest before Completing the day of atonement creates a cloud. Verse 13, he shall put the incense on the fire before the Lord that the cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat that is on the Ark of the Testimony, otherwise he will die. So incense and the cloud covering God's glory is a mighty, mighty important thing to understand. So how does the day of atonement complete? Imagine it or or picture it. The High Priest comes into the Holy of Holies. He takes uh, two handfuls uh, or yeah two handfuls of finely ground sweet incense. This is going to be an intense fire. He puts them on the altar and then uh, you know that cloud is created. It fills the room, and then at that point, the day of atonement continues and then he offers the sacrifice for the sins of the people. so Jesus, in ascending in the cloud uh, is demonstrating that he's the high priest. The yearly atonement, as the book of Hebrews says, was only done forward-looking to the work of Christ. Again, the Hebrew writer tells us that these things, the day of atonement, are just a shadow of the true substance. Hebrews 10.1, connecting with our reading, for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. The Hebrew writer here is saying that the things that were done in the Old Covenant were, were done in such a way as to indicate the true high priest, the true offering that Jesus Christ would bring. By rising up in the cloud through his ascension, Jesus demonstrates that he is the true high priest offering up the everlasting and final atonement. Hebrews 10, 10 through 12, and by that will, that is Jesus Christ's will to do the will of God, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Verse 11, and every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single, a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. It's probably appropriate that the Greys aren't here just so I don't think, you know, so John doesn't think I'm flattering him. But there was this one worship night a few months ago where John Gray, you know, there's two types of prophecies that we have in this church often. There's kinds where people just stand up and say, I feel the Lord is saying. And then there's what I like to think of a prophetic reading. Someone feels led by the Lord to read a particular passage of scripture. And there was one day when John Gray was at a Friday night fellowship and he stood up and read these verses, and I got knocked on my rear uh, because I was so humbled by the weight of the power of the implication of verse 12. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down. The ascension of Jesus Christ going up into the heavens, taking a seat at the right hand of the Father, being for us, A new Adam, one who is humanity redeemed, fulfilled with its true purpose. He taking his seat is not just the restoration of humanity, it is also the culmination of the atonement. Without Jesus Christ ascending, the work of the cross would not have been finished. And that is how you understand these crazy weird passages in Hebrews that are hard to understand. You have to do deep biblical work to find the foundation. So Jesus is the high priest. He is the one who atones, not only offering up the sacrifice himself, but himself being the sacrifice, and through that demonstrates that he is the true high priest. We don't need another. The atonement was completed when Jesus sat down at the right hand of God after his ascension, demonstrating the finality and lasting work of Jesus. Now. That is beautiful theological implication and foundation. But what does it mean for us? The way into the holy place was revealed through Christ's bodily sacrifice. And this salvation that Jesus Christ reveals does not cast us away, but rather it invites us in. The Day of Atonement was not so that Israel could feel bad all the time although it does, as the Hebrew writer says, offer or bring about a remembrance of sins. The Day of Atonement was so that Israel could still draw near to God, even though her her sins were like scarlet. uh, God, over and over again through the prophets, is reasoning and calling to Israel, come, let us reason together, come, surely I will wipe away your sins. But Israel sins over and over and over again, running after other gods, making idols, uh, worshiping the land instead of the one who made the land. And at this point in the year, God himself has established a manner by which Israel may once again approach and be near God. But the Hebrew writer says that these were done as a stopgap. It's kind of like a temporary. Have you ever put a spare tire on your car? What's the rule with spare tires? I'm, I'm surprised that more people don't know this. 55 miles at 55 miles an hour. You can't go faster on a spare tire than 55 miles an hour. It'll just fall apart. And you're not supposed to go faster. Uh, you're not supposed to ride on it for longer than 55 miles. What the Hebrew writer is saying is the Old Covenant worship system was a temporary. It was a spare tire. It was a provisional way that Israel could approach God in faith, not making something up their own, but rather God's provision for them, that one day would be removed and completely finalized. And so at this point, the Day of Atonement being connected with Christ's atonement, that being just a shadow of Christ's atonement, we know that God's heart toward us is one of inviting. This salvation ushers in and draws in, even in the midst of our sin. Hebrews ten twenty-one through 22 Verse 21, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Verse 21 doesn't make sense unless you see Jesus as being the high priest completing the atonement. Verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Now you and I, we can, as uh as delegates of the church, we can baptize people, and that's what it means to have your body uh, washed with pure water. But the only one who can do this work of sprinkling your your heart clean from an empty or from a conscience that's full of dead works, or sins, or grievances against God is Christ Himself through the Spirit. That's a spiritual reality. Of course, in the old covenant, they would take the blood and they would splatter it on things. But now, what this is saying is that that's been done away with. Jesus Christ himself is going to take his blood and apply it to your heart by the Spirit. And this is a thing of faith that the natural mind cannot understand. Because Christ has ascended, we are to draw near to him. And because the atonement has covered all sin, we have confidence of God's verdict concerning his children, that is, mercy. What do I mean by that? The Day of Atonement was done yearly because sins continue to keep happening. But what the Hebrew writer says is after Christ has made the atonement, after he had for one time and all finalized the offering for sin, he sat down, meaning that your sins that take place after Christ sat down are already covered. This is amazing, extravagant, unknowable grace that you and I can have confidence to draw near to God's throne to come before his presence in the midst of our sin while repenting it, while fighting against it, while by the Spirit putting it to death, but still all the while knowing that we have shortcomings and failures, uh, parts of our heart, parts of our will, rebelling against God, though submitting to his word as we learn to walk in a mature way, we know that they're already covered. Now an evidence that you are not following God's will and you are not God's child is you will take that and make that your license for sin. Well, if Jesus' atonement is already completed through the ascension and he's sat down and he is not continuing to offer a sacrifice for sins, if if my future sins are covered, well, then eat, drink, and be merry. Let's go party all night. Let's go live wildly. That's an evidence that you are not really one who's... uh, been sprinkled with the blood of Christ. If, however, you say, God, all my fears are allayed. You have removed the weight of sin from my head. You are a merciful and true high God. I wish to follow your law. Train me that I would walk in your ways. If that's your response to the promise of future invincible grace, then that's amazing. And that's a miracle that God has brought you to that place. The, the the ascension of Christ demonstrates that he is not only ruling and reigning, which is something we emphasize all the time. Jesus Christ is the King of kings, the Lord of lords. He is ruling over the world, bringing about his will through his spirit, through his church, remaking, renewing the earth. And he will culminate that project in a great restoration of which uh, the prophets of old have said, the glory of God will cover the waters Uh, The knowledge of the glory of God will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. The question, of course, in that imagery is how do the waters cover the sea? Totally. Totally cover the sea. There's no place in a sea where there's not water. That's by definition the sea. The prophet is saying God's gospel, God's restoration, is going to touch everything in the world. It's not fire and brimstone at the end of the age. It's God is bringing about a restoration. Now, assuredly, there is a judgment for those who resist him, but, however, God would never let it be said of the Holy Spirit that he was unable to convert the world, as my dad likes to say. Christ, through his ascension, has shaped how we are to live with our brothers and sisters, not just in our vertical relationship with God, but it also has implications for how we do life as a church, as the people of God. Hebrews ten, twenty four through 25, and let us consider, this is, a, this is a continuing of the idea for the Hebrew writer, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Because Christ has ascended, the Spirit will come, which we will celebrate next week. But also because Christ has ascended, we can live holy lives filled with good works, and because Christ has ascended, we can bodily uh, because Christ has ascended bodily, we can draw near. If someone wants to grab the kids, we're gonna close. We can we can draw near with fullness of faith to the table where he offers once again himself. That's what the Hebrew writer is saying in verse twenty two. Let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith. There's no doubt. For those who are offered forgiveness through Christ of his position toward you. Though you sin and war against sin and repent of sin and renounce it as such and declare it to be evil as God declares, though you do that, he still is seated at the right hand. And until he gets up, there's nothing to be said of your iniquities. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We do ask, Lord, that you would give us the strength of constitution, the grace of your spirit, that we would turn from our sin. Lord, as this passage in Hebrews goes on to say that if we continue to sin willfully, there, never, there does not remain a sacrifice for sins. There's nothing left to offer. Lord, we pray that we would never trample your blood under our feet. Give us the grace and faith to believe your word, saying that we have a way to walk in newness of life, having been baptized by water, having had our hearts sprinkled with your blood. Lord, give us us the faith today to know that you love us and you are pleased with us. You want us to come after you. Lord, though we are in deep need of maturing, in deep need of persistence and steadfastness of heart, though we are ignorant of your word in many ways, Lord, we ask you that you would fill us with the truth that you wish for us to come to you. You want your children back. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.